0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mark L. Abbott. Dad, we don't have a chimney, so how does Santa get in the house? Real simple. He rings a bell. Okay, but if it's not snowing, does he bring the
1: sled? No, he has a truck. That and more. But before that, don't forget that Risk is returning to the stage on January 20th at Caveat in New York City. You can always find your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour and Two days later, Risk will be returning to San Francisco. On January 22nd, Risk will be appearing at San Francisco Sketch Fest. We have a phenomenal cast, Yamanika Saunders, Shalewa Sharp, Jonah Ray, and Mary Jo Peel. So you can always find tickets for all Risk Live shows at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa,
3: whoa, whoa. It's the most wonderful
4: time of the year.
1: Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Klaus Nomi behind me now, and this is our Holiday Stories episode number 14! We made it through another really wild year, a year of putting out fantastic episodes despite all the craziness and this this episode is just absolutely jam-packed hey i know it's late but if you are still really stuck for finding a christmas present for someone at the last minute go on over to the storystudio.org because the gift certificate's there great way to give the gift of storytelling. You must know someone who would love to take a storytelling workshop over there. And there's also the Risk Book. You go on over to Amazon, the Risk Book is still available. It makes for a great and very affordable gift for almost anyone. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from me. A little story I told at the Very recent Risk Live show at Caveat here in New York City. But before that, Ashley Ward is back on the show since forever. You can find Ashley on Twitter at Ashley J. Ward. But before that, Mark L. Abbott is returning to the show. He told this story just a couple nights ago at Caveat. You can find Mark at whoismarklabbott.com. And here he is now with a story we call... Secret Santa.
0: (laughs) My father knew everything there had to be known about Santa Claus. He was the preeminent person in the house. Anything we wanted for Christmas, first of all, he had a beeline to this man. He knew the address, he had his phone number, and he could answer any question we had about Santa Claus. For example, I wanted a dog. Can't have a dog, well why not? Won't survive the trip from the North Pole. He won't stay on the sleigh, so Santa can't bring him. Dad, we don't have a chimney. So how does Santa get in the house? Real simple, he rings a bell. And that's why I have to stay up and sit by the window and make sure that he doesn't wake you when he comes to the house. Okay, but if it's not snowing, does he bring the sled? No, he has a truck. (laughs) A truck, he goes, yeah. He drives down from the North Pole and he pulls up in front of the house with everything. He's like, how do you think he gets to all the malls? How do you think he gets to Macy's? He's got a truck. There was no way to stump this man. And here is the other thing. If there was something on our list that he knew he had to go out and get, this was what he told us, I may have to go to Toys R Us and look for this. I spoke to Santa, he says he ran out of the parts. And so I may have to pick this up and ship it to him because he ran out of the parts and this could also help other children who may want the same item as you. That was the explanation as to why I didn't get the Lionel train set I wanted, because they ran out of parts for the James Gang version, and that's why I got the New York Flyer, because that's all Santa had in his workshop. So in 1982, they re-released Empire Strikes Back, and now that the 77 version is over and the toy phase has kicked in, I needed refreshed toys. I needed a new TIE fighter, I needed a new X-wing and I needed, most of all, the most coveted one that we could never get our hands on, which was the Millennium Falcon. And so I asked my father, I said, this is, gave him the list and everything. And my father changed shifts. He was a cop. He had changed shifts and he had decided this one evening to come home early. And normally as a family, we would all go out Christmas shopping. My parents would let my brother and I go in one direction. They would go off in another. But we never saw my father actually buy anything. But this time, he says, listen, I got to run to Toys R Us. Apparently, I got a call at work from Santa. He can't find these parts for these ships that you want, so I'm going to run to Toys R Us. So I said, can I go? And then my brother, much younger than me, he's like, I want to go too. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm only taking one of you. Mark, you go, you're the oldest, let's go. So 11-year-old me gets in the car with my dad and we're driving to Toys R Us and he says, now remember, if I have to pick up any of these items, they're not for you to play with when we get home. I have to ship them out. So don't expect to open any of these gifts if I have to buy anything. Not a problem. We get to Toys R Us and he says, you know, why don't you go ahead and take a look around the store? Really? Yeah, go, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I know exactly what I'm looking for. I don't need you with me. You can go around the store. You let 11-year-old loose in Toys R Us. It's great. So I'm moving around the store and promise to meet back in the front. And somehow I make my way back around to where he is, although I don't realize he's in the aisle over. And Toys R Us this particular evening is not crowded, but people are in there. They're grabbing what they need to get. And at one point, I hear a commotion. And remember, this is the early 80s, so there's no internet or anything. When This is the cabbage patch years, when people almost killed each other for something on the shelf. And I hear this commotion, and I'm like, damn, that sounds like my father. And then I hear somebody yell, gun! And so, me not thinking, I turn the corner. And there's my father, holding a TIE fighter on one hand under his arm, and his revolver in the other, aimed at this guy at the other end of the aisle. And I'm like, the hell? So I kind of creep up alongside him. I'm like, Dad? And he goes, oh shit. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, all right, get the X-Wing off the shelf. I'm like, what? He's like, get the X-Wing fighter off the shelf. So I grab the X-Wing and I look over, I'm like, they have the Millennium Falcon. We're not having that discussion right now. Just, just do me a favor. Go in my right back pocket and get my badge. Okay, so I pull the badge out. Now show it to this guy. So I open the badge, and all of a sudden, everything kind of calms down, because these two didn't realize they were facing off against a cop. Security is here, police have shown up, and now we're escorted into the back to the explanation of exactly what happened. My father saw the last TIE fighter on the shelf. He reached for it just at the same time this guy reached for it. And neither one of them were gonna let it go. So they got into a wrestling match over this TIE fighter. <laughs> the guy grabbed my father, and I guess my dad thought the guy knew he had a gun and was reaching for it, so he pulled the gun on this guy. So. Police are like, okay, we got it. This, said the guy's a badge, you know, don't worry about it. My father goes, let's go. We pay for all of this stuff. And we get out in the car and my father's sitting there and he goes, you cannot tell your mother what happened. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And he goes, don't tell anyone in the house that I pulled a gun on somebody. I'm like, all right, that's not a problem. I said, I can keep a secret. And I said, so, where are we going now? We're going to the post office so you can ship this stuff out? And he goes, there is no Santa Claus. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And he goes, there is no Santa Claus. We're not shipping anything out. I'm like, well, wait a minute. What do you mean there's no Santa Claus? So first, anger, wait. What do you mean there's no Santa Claus? You told me there's a Santa Claus. Mark, think about this. He has a truck. Think about the things I told you. Who drives a truck from the North Pole to North America to Europe? How does that work? Magic? Okay, flying reindeer. Have you ever seen? Well, no. He goes, he knows if you've been bad or good. Who would know that other than me and your mother? Rationalization. (laughs) Oh, so that makes sense now. Because you have been saying you didn't want me to have a dog. So that was your excuse. You're gonna blame it on Santa that the dog wasn't gonna make the trip on the the sleigh. Okay, so it's you and mom who are, uh, that explains why I don't get the things that I want because the two of you are determined not to let me have it. Third. Now that I realize it's my father, the anger kind of subsides, the rationalization kicks in, and then I go, so, it's you and mom. Mm-hmm. And you don't want mom to know about the situation here at the store, right? She said, no, we agreed to that. You know, that Millennium Falcon <laughs> Looking mighty lonely on that shelf. What do you think mom would say? Eh, my father looks at me, kind of cracks a smile, and he goes, do not push your luck. (laughs) Thank you.
3: This song is about the truck driver that is out on the road for Christmas. Cause he has nobody at home But he's happy just to be driving his truck
0: I've got Christmas tree lights in the cab of my truck Cause that's where I'll be Christmas i got nowhere to go
3: And no one I know Needs me around on Christmas my old truck and I will be flying high, a singing them Christmas songs. I'll be singing the wells and the jingling and bells, cause I'm out on the road. For Christmas.
5: I was about eight and my sister Hayden was about six, we were living in my mom's house in Georgia. My mother was recently divorced from my father and it was getting close to Christmas time and we were upstairs playing, my sister and I, and our playing, I guess, got out of hand and we started fighting. My mother hears us from downstairs and hollers up, y'all quit fighting. And we calm down for a second, but soon enough, we're back at it. And it's out of control again. And my mother hears this again. And she yells up there, Now y'all better quit with the fighting. And you can tell she's serious. So, you know, we calm down a bit. But, of course, whatever the thing we were fighting about escalated again. Oh, she's pinching me, she's biting me, all that kind of stuff. So finally, my mother storms upstairs, and she said, I told y'all, y'all better quit fighting. Now, you quit. And we were still, while she's standing there, fighting and slapping and pinching and biting. She said, well, if y'all don't quit fighting, I'm going to tell Santa Claus well, it was like record scratch moment. We both just completely stopped what we were doing. We looked up at her, fear in our eyes, and we were just like, Mama, we're so sorry. Please, please, don't tell Santa Claus. I mean, she had really invoked the nuclear option, and we were scared straight in that moment, and we were not going to fight anymore. This enraged her, (laughs) because she had asked us, as our mother, the person who fed us, clothed us, birthed us, housed us, and we had continued, unabated, and then she invokes Santa Claus, and we are immediately perfect little angels again, and she turns to us, and she says, so when I ask you to stop fighting, you don't listen, but when I bring up Santa Claus, then you stop fighting, and we're like, oh, we're so sorry, Mama, please, please don't tell Santa Claus. We'll we'll be good. We're making it worse. We keep bringing up the Santa Claus thing, but we are already at this point on the verge of tears telling her how sorry we are, and it's too far gone at this point. So she grabs both of us by our arms. She walks us into her room. She throws open her closet door of her walk-in closet, and she takes a deep breath. She looks at us. She slings back a bunch of her clothes on the rack and yells, I'm your Santa Claus. And behind those clothes are all the things we've asked for for Christmas. Barbie dolls, Monopoly game, records, everything, books, all there in her closet. Well, we just immediately burst into tears. We're just both sobbing and upset, seeing all these toys, knowing what this means, the magnitude of this moment. And then she immediately bursts into tears, (laughs) understanding the magnitude of this moment of what she's did, that she's lost her temper. And in the midst of us crying and telling her how sorry we are, she starts saying how sorry she is and we're all hugging and crying and it's this very emotional, dysfunctional family (laughs) moment. We asked her years later about it and she claims to not remember and that it didn't happen. But it's a good thing about having a sibling You always have someone to back up your memories.
1: I thought it would be fun if I just reached out to a few members of my family and said, well, what are your Christmas memories? Like, remind me of some things that happened. And my sister Becca, my little sister, is a therapist. So uh, she remembers everything and also has a deep interpretation of everything. But this one I loved. I just want to read it verbatim. She said, one year when we were kids you dared me to break an ornament on the tree. You kept saying, just break one. Come on, it'll be fun. I'll give you $3. So I broke one. And then on Christmas day, front and center on the tree, there was a plastic sandwich baggie hanging from the tree from a hook with broken ornament pieces in it. And on masking tape, you'd written with a Sharpie, Tragically, this ornament was broken by Becca. (laughs) I think everyone could immediately assume that uh, I made her do that. (laughs) Um, But I was also thinking, like, she, she also, there was just one part of her email that she wrote to me where she just wrote one sentence, and I was like, I love it. I love when someone says like one sentence of a memory of something that suddenly when you start going back and being like, wait, what was happening in the months prior to that? Or what did that lead to? Where all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, there is a saga there. So the one sentence she said was, I remember Peter and his black leather jacket. So here's the deal. There's five Allison kids. I'm the fourth. My oldest brother, Peter, is, he's the prickly one, you know? He's like the kind of a, you know, curmudgeon, you know, kind of a a jaded, blunt kind of guy. There was one year that we went on a family vacation to a beach house in South Carolina. And he texted us, you know, hey, it's been a long drive. So when I get there, I'm going to want to have a nap. We were like, yeah, yeah, sure, we won't make any plans. We can have a map when you arrive, or a nap when you arrive. So he shows up in the car, and everyone runs out of the house to give him a hug. He gets out of the car, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be time for hugs later. And walks right up into the house and goes to bed. So whenever we see him nowadays for the, you know, we haven't seen him in a while, we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be time for hugs later. But anyway, Peter... In 1984, he was in college, and he was really determined at all times to be kind of cutting edge and badass, right? And he had just seen the film The Terminator that year, and oh my gosh, he was so impressed with how badass that movie was. He was also always very concerned that I was turning out to be a little faggy. Uh, Little did he know, I was turning out to be a lot faggy. But, you know, he would do things to try to toughen me up. He tried to get me on the football team. And in this particular incident, he thought it would toughen me up a little bit to take me to the Terminator. He wasn't technically old. You had to be 21 to accompany a minor. I was about 14 at the time. So he took me to the Terminator. And I think the one thing he didn't put together was, I don't think that movie got its R rating, because of the violence, I think it's because the first scene in which Arnold Schwarzenegger appears, he's completely nude. And what is this, you know, however many decades later? That's the one scene from The Terminator that I still remember. (laughs) But Pete came away from that movie thinking, I want to get myself a black leather jacket with shoulder pads inside like the terminator so he asked my mom for that for christmas and my mom my mom grew up in the 50s and she was a very very good catholic girl and she said peter black leather jackets are for greasers and greasers are losers so Didn't look like it was going to happen, right? I could have told Peter that that would be her reaction because she'd also been very upset several years prior when I got the soundtrack album for the movie Grease, which criminally really humanizes greasers. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) so Pete takes me to the Terminator. He's determined to get that jacket no matter what. Christmas morning arrives. Everyone's giving dozens and dozens and dozens of presents. Every single box that Pete opens, he quickly checks to see if it's a leather jacket. And then he looks to the person and says, cool, cool, cool. You got the receipt. Can you give me the receipt for this? Uh, He had no intention of keeping anything or pretending he liked anything. So by the end of it all, he had like a stack of receipts. And on December 26th, on Boxing Day, he went out and he got himself a black leather jacket with the pads underneath, like the Terminator, right? Only here's the thing. Pete started wearing this jacket everywhere. And everyone he knew, they had an interesting reaction to it because they hadn't seen the Terminator. So they would say to him, oh, Pete. Okay, yeah, a leather jacket with, like, shoulder paddy things. uh, Like, Michael Jackson? (laughs) So, come around about February, Pete gives the jacket to my mom, and he says, I don't think I want this thing anymore. It's kind of faggy. So she puts it in a bag to go to Goodwill. Now at the age of 14, I was already thinking plenty ahead because I knew that in about five years, I'd be going to college too. And I was dead set determined that the college I was gonna go to was gonna be in New York fucking city so that I could be faggy. (laughs) So. I went down into the laundry room, scrounged into that Goodwill bag, got that jacket, and hid it, ironically, in my closet for five years. And then the day finally came that I was in Greenwich Village, and I put a pink triangle pin right on that jacket. And... The first big occasion I went to wearing that jacket was a Christmas party. It was at my friend Tim and Derek's place in the East Village, and it was their annual Christmas party that was just a big apartment filled wall-to-wall with hot, young, gay men, right? So Tim opens the door when I arrive, and he says, Whoa! Fabulous, this jacket, and with the shoulder pads underneath. And I said, Yeah. And then we both said in unison, like Joan Crawford. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. This is Risk, this is Cindy Lauper behind me now, and we just heard from me. Before that, a little something from Dolly Parton from Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Before that, that anecdote by Ashley Ward. Before that, a little interstitial created by a song made by Santa Cloud called Better Watch Out, and that song by Red Simpson about being out in his truck for Christmas we pack so many little surprises into these holidays episodes like stocking stuffer kind of treats and if you love this sort of programming the incomparable the irreplaceable risk podcast be sure to help us out over at patreon.com risk or you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash risk show Get back to the stories. That was Jingle Cats behind me, and in a little bit. We're going to hear from Sean David Christensen. But before that, Joy Gabriel returned to the show when we did it just last week at Caveat. She hadn't been on since 2010. And this story is actually a little bit of a sequel of the first story that she did share on the show way back when. So here she is now. This is Joy Gabriel with a story we call Breaking the Cycle.
3: My mom is the queen of holidays. Right down to Veterans Day, Arbor Day, she owns them all. Everyone, when I was growing up, liked to compare her to Martha Stewart when she was, you know, right in the height of the 90s. And she wasn't really sure she liked that comparison, mostly because she thought she was better than Martha Stewart. And she tried to prove it especially uh, around Christmas at the annual open house where she decorated every inch of our house to perfection and she spent days cooking, doing it all herself. Uh, meaning she violated child labor laws, having my sister and I wrap those bacon wrap dates, and my brothers were upstairs pretending to clean their rooms, and she was down in the basement sewing all the custom matching dresses and barking orders up the stairs. Joy, did you pipe the cream puffs? Did you put the Santas on the pedophores? <sighs> Joy will be here in fifteen minutes. You know nothing really says Martha Stewart like barking orders at your underlings. Just saying. But it always came together and those parties really glittered. And her skills and talents really stood out to me though on Christmas Eve. Those were strictly VIP only family affairs where we got all dressed up and we lit every candle in the house like we were going to the fanciest parties. And those were some of the most magical, wondrous, connected moments of my childhood and at some point she would always point out the light on Christmas Eve. Something about it looks a little bit different, don't you think, she would say. And even as a really young kid, I could feel my heart opening to my family, to humanity, to God. Don't forget to set an extra place at the table she told me. Who wants to sit next to him? My sister and I just froze, holding the fancy gold cutlery, watching my brother disappear around the corner. I wasn't sure how to respond because I didn't know if it was a good idea to fight over who got to sit next to Jesus at Christmas dinner. <laughs> we always fought over who got to sit next to my Aunt Jane, but <laughs> would it be rude not to fight over it? I mean, would he think I didn't want to sit next to him? He should sit next to you, Mommy, Sarah said. Oh, kiss up, I thought, because that was clearly the right answer. <laughs> Mom floated over in her black velvet gown and kissed Sarah on the top of her blonde curly head and said, you should sit on the other side of him. We all stood around the table and listened to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and sat down for dinner, and I tried my very hardest to pretend like I was either in church or at Buckingham Palace. And then dinner was over, and we cleared the plates and got ready to bring out our annual birthday cake for Jesus and reverently sing happy birthday. And my mom stopped. Look, doesn't it look like there's less Martinelli's in the glass? My dad kind of peered over and gave a, hmm, and then just carried on towards the kitchen, and my mom stopped, made him that whole response she did not care for, and it just made her double down, and she goes, look, everybody, I'm serious. I think he wants us to know he was here. All at once, I could feel my heart beating in my chest and my vision started to tingle around the edges like the beginning of a migraine aura. And the glass looked exactly the same to me, but everyone was just zoomed in on it, not saying anything. Could they all see it? I looked harder. Maybe there was a shadow there. I I didn't know what was happening, and the room was very, like, July thick in the air. I was having a hard time catching my breath. To this day, I do not know why I didn't just shrug, play along, move on to happy birthday, but I have this annoying driving problem that I just need to keep it real. So I dove in, and I said, I don't really understand Mom's glowing, holy Madonna facade just crumbled, and her eyes lasered over to me, and she goes, she said nothing, (sighs) and I said, well, I guess I just mean, um, if he was here in spirit, oh, no, he was personally here, well, right, yes, so, Maybe if he was here in a spirit form, I mean, and not like as a physical body is just what I'm wondering because would he drink the juice? Like, wouldn't it have to go into his stomach? And I don't know. Mom brushed some crumbs off the table without looking at me. Always so literal joy. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is a literal Son of God, the Lord of all creation? Of course, Mom, you're asking me that on Christmas Eve. Well, if you believe it, don't you think he has plenty of ways to make a tiny little bit of liquid disappear? I think it went down, Mommy, Sarah piped in. I think so too, sweetie, Mom said. I stood absolutely still, but it felt like I was falling. Sometimes our physical eyes won't allow us to see the truth, and we need to ask the Lord to remove the scales from our eyes so we can see through the eyes of faith the way things really are, she explained to me. Do you understand? I nodded, said a prayer, and looked at the glass again. It looked exactly the same. (laughs) But I was devastated. I didn't have enough faith to open my spiritual eyes and see the truth. I looked at my mom. I wanted to see more than anything. I looked at my family sitting around the table and I couldn't bear to be the one standing outside of it. Can you see? She asked. Yes, I said. She smiled and I walked into her open arms for a hug although I was sick with worry that my faith myself, were lacking. And the moment I stepped into her arms, it was okay. For a brief moment, everything felt just right. Over time, mom and I grew apart. Her visions and revelations got bigger and grander, and led to more trouble in reality. And it became really clear to me that she had emotional troubles and mental health issues. But because I had a lot of awe and, frankly, reverence for her, uh, she had a hold over me that was really difficult to shake. Uh, but eventually it just became impossible to communicate. I don't see the world the way she does anymore, and it's been a really long time since I believe in anything resembling, since I believe in anything. Now, that's Jesus getting back at me with the grammar. Um, But it's been a really long time since I have believed in anything that resembles the God or the religion that she spent so much time trying to anchor us to with all that magic on Christmas Eve. Uh, But thanks to therapy, I have learned that you can reject the things that are really damaging and hold on to any little gems that might be left. So once I had my own children, I got real serious about digging around trying to find any Christmas jewels that might be hiding. It kind of reminds me of these lift the flat books you might be familiar with if you have met a child called, um, where is baby's, whatever, where is baby's Christmas present? Is it uh, under the bed? No, that's the kitty. Is it behind the couch? No, that's Uncle Louie. I don't know, it's been a long time and if you met my Uncle Louie, you would understand. Um, But instead, I was like, where is Mama's Christmas magic? Is it doing the nativity play? Nope. Is it going to midnight mass? Uh, no is it watching Frozen 200 times <laughs> No, no. Um, so this year uh, my oldest uh, wanted to talk about Jesus and what's historical and the nativity play and it got real deep and real very fast and at some point she just burst out laughing and she goes oh, how could anyone believe that That is so fake. And I'm not going to lie. It hurt my feelings a little bit. And not just because I automatically believed every outlandish thing my mother said to me. And I spent years berating myself over this. And I have a little critic in my head that sounds just like Dennis Leary. Oh, I never would have believed any of that crap when I was a kid. And I let Dennis kick my ass from here back to Boston um, until finally I was just like, all right, we get it, tough guy. You don't need your mother's love. Sit down. Um, you didn't need the cream puffs. But my daughter knows that I don't believe in God at all, the way that I was raised to, but that this is a sensitive topic, and this stuff is important to me. So I don't know if she said that because she's in middle school, and it's a constant quest to find mom's nuclear meltdown button. <laughs> Or if I just genuinely birthed a little Dennis Leary. But uh, I told her I was going to need a minute, which was a genius parenting move because she was already halfway up the stairs. And later she came to find me and she said, I'm sorry, I did that, mom. I didn't mean to hurt you. And I hugged her real close. And then we had a talk about appropriate ways to respectfully express ourselves about other religious beliefs etc because I am not raising a Dennis Leary then we had an age-appropriate conversation about mom's upbringing and she turned to look at me and she said one of my favorite things about us mom is that when we solve problems afterwards I can feel our relationship is stronger I know she sounds like a 45-year-old therapist, but I swear that is a direct quote. And mom, we got a lot of problems. Thank, thank you. Thanks, honey. Um, but it always makes me feel good to know that whatever problems we have, we can always fix it. I said that to my husband when we were snuggling in bed, and he goes, you know what she's talking about, right? Unconditional love. Whoa, I don't know if I was more amazed that he said that or that he was right, but he was totally right. And suddenly I saw this whole Dennis Leary shenanigan in a completely different way. I was amazed by her laughing in my face at my deepest wounds. (laughs) I never ever would have questioned my mom about anything because I wasn't allowed to. Her love was exactly like the God that she believed in. You could get it in droves as long as you believed and behaved in exactly the way she wanted. In other words, it was entirely conditional. My daughter telling me exactly what she thought and felt made me hope that the biggest, wildest dream of my life might be taking root that maybe, maybe I was doing things in a different way, breaking a cycle, loving and living in a way I never even imagined was possible. These Christmas Eve's, the ones when I was young, I could count on a special light, an incredible feeling, a fancy dinner, Even Jesus was invited, but in my home, I have no idea what's gonna happen. (laughs) The kids will probably, definitely fight. I'm gonna make something for dinner that one or both of them finds totally disgusting. Someone's gonna march up the stairs screaming, you ruined my life! But maybe somebody will come out from behind the slam door and hug and try again. And maybe we'll laugh too loud at a reindeer toss game I bought that everyone says is for babies, mom, but secretly loves. And we will dance and sing really loud to totally irreverent Christmas pop songs. We'll let go of our mothers to be someone's mama right here today. And it's probably just me, but I feel a kind of magic being so human together. I seriously doubt that anyone's gonna remember this kind of special Christmas Eve light when they grow up, but the one thing that they can count on is that it's real. And that's my Christmas gift to them this year and always. Thanks for listening.
2: When Jesus died for man's sins, he even died
3: for man's sins. But please don't.
4: Guys
1: the best to sell love great
2: I'm 10 years old, and I'm sitting in the dugout of the um, baseball diamond at my middle school. It's P.E., and I'm trapped. Not only by a uh, section of chain-link fence that surrounds me, but also by a a half-circle of laughing 6th graders. And I've been here before. I'm very familiar with this. I know I'm stuck, and the only way to get out is to give them exactly what they want for me to say Chuck E. Cheese just that, just the name Chuck E. Cheese now you you may be asking yourself Sean, buddy just say Chuck E. Cheese it's just a name, right? for me when I was that young just a name was more than just a name words were more than words the act of speech was incredibly difficult for me I had a, a host of speech impediments a stutter, which means I got like stuck on a word, like a playing card in the spoke of a bicycle, wheel. Uh, I had a stammer, which was kind of like I couldn't force a letter out of my throat. It would get kind of stuck like a car, flooding an engine. And I had what I later came to know in my adult life as phonetic disorders. A certain combination of letters creates an unnatural shape or sound. So my CHs sounded like and my S's uh, were th- My tongue just whistled past my teeth, and I couldn't really connect my, my mouth. It was really a, a physical impediment that I didn't, I didn't have a name for. All I knew was the embarrassment it caused whenever I tried to speak, which was rarely. This was a, a private shame that I kept as a child for years. So, <laughs> I'm back in the dugout, right? So now you can imagine <laughs> the gales of laughter the hilarity caused by a name like Chuck E. Cheese, which was the kiss of death for me, right? It's got 2 H S and a string of S's at the end. I was doomed. But this was their most favorite pastime. And I think I kind of adopted being kind of like a class clown to them, albeit a dysfunctional one, and I think they got a lot more enjoyment out of pulling my string like I was a wind-up toy, but they were more amused by pulling the string on a broken toy and washing it sputter out, more delighted in what it couldn't do than what it could. Funny, right? So, I said it, hoping they'd let me go, but all that meant was now they knew how easy it was to get some quick amusement, so they asked me again and again. And that's kind of what school was like for me when I was in the sixth grade. You know, I, I tried to get along the best I could by being nice, but that only went so far. And this was kind of like, I, I lived within this. It was kind of like navigating a maze, you know? I learned to avoid certain situations, to not put myself out there for certain things, to kind of hold back, because that was my way to escape. And I couldn't wait to get home Like most kids, you know, you go home and you play. For me, I created these private worlds that I lost myself in, you know, whether it was singing to myself or writing a song or my favorite pastime, making little comic books. And I would draw speech bubbles with dialogue inside of it. And I would whisper to myself in a voice that I wish I could hear out loud, you know, a voice that was unbroken and uninhibited by this painful maze of speech that I was trapped in. But the weekends were the best, because on the weekends, I got to sing. And when I was 10 years old, I was a member of the Phoenix Boys Choir. Not to, you know, pat myself on the back here as a 37-year-old man, but as a 10-year-old, I was a member of a world-renowned boy choir. And we had um, just an exceptional choir master, Dr. Jones. And every Saturday, we would gather in a, in a little practice room with some squeaky black plastic chairs and a tile drop ceiling and a stand up piano in the corner there's like 30 boys all packed in there i i loved those saturday mornings because i felt i felt normal i felt like i belonged and these were my friends and that time of year was really special this was around early october when we were starting to gear up for practicing for our christmas concerts which would come months later but we got to get ready now because you know we were singing some challenging material. Benjamin Britton was one of the composers I loved to sing, You know these really complex cathedrals of sound, these majestic choral works, you know, and we were practicing all of that together because Christmas time was a very special time for the choir. We usually did this, um, there was a Christmas skit that was attached to our Christmas concert, so we, we would sing these carols and cantatas, and there was a, a through line through it all, and it was the story of the three wise men going to see baby Jesus. And every year, they would choose three boys from the choir to be the three wise men. It's a speaking role, so you can imagine uh, Sean wasn't picked for this one. (laughs) But we would practice our songs, and then we'd take a break, and then the three wise men would, would read their lines from their chairs. And I would just be sitting there listening and thinking to myself, I want that. That must be so cool to be a wise man, to have a role, to have something to say. I really wanted that for myself. I think more, though, beyond me just being an insufferable theater kid, I think I, at that age I really wanted to be heard more than anything. I wanted people to understand me. So I would listen to these, these three wise men and thinking, you know, one day I will be wise. You know, one day I will get past this. I'll grow out of it. But Monday would come and I would find myself back in the classroom and, you know, you're in you're in class. Did you ever have to read aloud from the book? You all get your books out, and then you go desk by desk, row by row. It's like, okay, turn to page four, and you take turns with the paragraphs reading. Oh, God, I hated that. I would be counting the desks before it was my turn. And uh, when, when it would get to my desk, and I would have a big paragraph in front of me. I remember this one time when uh, I just, my throat, locked up i couldn't get past the first literally the first word my my stammering became even worse when i felt anxious all it would take was just a couple of giggles floating behind my back my cheeks would get hot and i would think how foolish of a dream that is to believe that any day i'd be wise what a what a foolish thing to dream for you know I kind of learned to stuff that dream deeper and forget about it or pretend it wasn't there. Until one day, my mom picked me up from school, as she usually did. And that day was kind of different because she was driving a bit slower. I could sense that something was on her mind. We drove past a pumpkin patch set up outside a grocery store, and some hay was thrown down on the parking lot. And I'm kind of looking out the window, and my mom stops at a stoplight and she kind of rests her hands on the wheel and she turns to me and says so um some of your teachers have asked me if you would be interested in going to see a speech therapist do you know what that is Sean? I said no. In the back of my mind I'm like is that like a doctor? Don't you go see a doctor when you're sick? I'm not sick And then, like, I was imagining, like, are they going to, like, announce it over, like, the loudspeaker in the classroom? Like, attention, Sean, come to the doctor's office. It's time to see the speech therapist. She kind of um, rubbed her hands on the steering wheel. And she said, because, you know, I want this to be something that you choose to do. That's important. You know, I'm looking at that stoplight and the car is kind of idling right there in the road and... I'm just looking at that dry hay on the floor of the parking lot. And all I can think of is the dry grass that's in the dugout. And I really thought about that, you know, choice. I think I got so used to being stuck, whether I was stuck behind a problem letter of a word I couldn't force out of my mouth, or stuck behind that chain link fence in that dugout. But I don't want to go to a therapist I remember distinctly, sharply turning to her my left and just saying, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to figure this out. And when the light turned green, we kept on driving. And Saturday comes. And with it, I have this feeling of like, now is the time to step into this new new way forward. And that's when I walked right up to Dr. Jones. He was putting his music in his briefcase, getting ready to go home. I kind of say, you know, in a little voice, Dr. Jones? He turns around. I want to be the understudy in the Christmas play. You ever see that in someone's face when, like, their eyes smile, but their face doesn't quite catch up? I could see his eyes kind of wrinkle behind his glasses, and he looks down at me as if to wonder, um... Yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't know we were doing a long day's journey into night. So Dr. Jones looks down at me and he he asks, Okay, Sean, um, what, what role were you, uh, thinking of doing? And I look up to him and I said, uh, all of them. I want to be the understudy for all the three wise men. His eyes kind of smile and there's like kind of a wrinkle in the corner of his face and he says, I'll be right back. So he goes downstairs, and he, he photocopies the script. And when he hands it to me, I can feel the weight of it. And this thing, this thing's heavy. It's got to be at least five pages. And I'm flipping through it, and I'm sitting on the curb outside the building where my dad would come pick me up. And I'm flipping through the script. I'm like, oh, Sean, what, if, what have you gotten yourself into? Like, I'm looking at all these words, like, angel. There's that NG, angel, I can hear in my head. That's what you're going to sound like, Sean. You're going to get up on stage, and you're going to be a fool. And I'm looking at angel and camel and sheep. It's gotten so much, I'm thinking, oh no, I've, I've made a huge mistake. My dad picks me up, and he looks at me, and he's like, what do you got there? Well, this is, this is the script. I'm going to be the understudy for all three wise men. My dad smiles and he says, well, we better get practicing. You know, the, the concert's coming up. And he was right. You know, by then it was early November. You know, I'm kind of counting down the days to our first Christmas concert, which was usually like December 1st. So I got this script and it's at home. And whereas before I'd come home and I'd draw some cartoons or sing a song, I come home and I'm, I'm ready to practice. I want to make sure I know the lines And so I got into this habit of, like, my dad and I, we would run lines together, and I would sit next to him in his bed like we were roommates in a Neil Simon play, and he would be my scene partner, right? And I would go through the script, and every time I would get stuck on a word where, like, that's that stutter I talked about, remember? You know, I'd get... It's that fluttering, those nerves. He would softly say, It's okay just sound it out just sound it out and I would, you know, sitting next to him I'd sound it out and at school I'd be standing in line for like lunch, you know and in my mind I'd be repeating the lines to myself at kickball I'd be way out in left field because the teacher was smart enough to know where to put me to be most valuable, right? so I'd be way out in left field daydreaming and repeating these lines in my head just getting ready and as the air got cooler, this feeling came upon me of like, what if you practice all these lines and you never get good to go up on stage? And our first Christmas concert happens, you know, it's December 1. And I'm I'm back in the choir, I'm looking out, and I see the three wise men, you know, and they got their little outfits on and their fake uh, beards made of like <laughs> painted cotton balls and, you know, there's a fake like wooden camel cut out and they're they're doing their lines and I'm kind of like repeating them under my breath (laughs) back there in the choir and I'm like, well, at least you're ready. You know, at least, at least you tried. But then about a week goes by and the air gets cooler and one of those boys catches a cold. And it was wise man number three. Now, wise man number three, he didn't have the most lines in the script, right? But he had the most important one. And that was a cue line directing the choir. Now's your time to sing. And the line was, and look up in the rafters and thousands of angels are singing. So right there, I'm in trouble. Angel. But I'm wise man number three. I mean, it's time for me to step up to the plate. So I'm backstage, it's the night of the show, and I'm getting dressed in this robe, and now I'm putting on the fake beard, and I'm scratching my face underneath it, because it's really kind of itchy, and I'm just like, "I've (laughs) I've made a huge mistake, and now it's too late, because I've grown facial hair, and now I'm a wise man. And so I'm kind of like wedged backstage at the church, where they keep the sacramental wine, and can see it in the cupboard and we're all kind of shoulder to shoulder backstage and we start to file out and you know I was so used to like following the choir and walking up on the risers behind me but this time I got to like walk out on stage with the two other wise men and one of them kind of smiled at me behind his beard like you ready this is going to be fun (laughs) and I'm like well maybe fun for you I got some doubts and so we're kind of shuffling out, and the lights are hot. I can't see anybody out in the audience, but I know that my parents are there, my sister's there. I know that they're there watching me. And we're shuffling through, and I'm pretending to like look off in the distance at the desert surrounding me. You know, I'm doing some pantomiming. Already at that age, I was a huge ham. And uh, you know, we're, we're kind of getting through it. And like just like I would count the desks before it was my turn to speak... I'm counting the lines before it's my turn to speak, and I gotta give that cue line. All I can see is darkness, but I can hear the people breathing, and they're, and they're waiting, the choir's waiting, and I know that my line is next. And so when it comes, I close my eyes and I say the line. And look, And up in the rafters, I can hear my voice thousands of angels are singing I I hear it for the first time for the first time I hear myself and thousands of angels are and it's echoing in the church and, are and I I'm like I I wanted this for so many years <laughs> More than anything I wanted this I wanted to be heard I don't know if any of you have felt that before Where you finally get that thing you've always wanted (sighs) I hope it happens for you Because it happened for me When I was just a kid And I heard my voice And the choir starts singing And the sound of the music they made Almost sounded like The sound of somebody saying It's gonna be okay You're gonna be okay It got colder that December in Phoenix, and as the temperature dropped, so too did more wise men. And wouldn't you know it, because I memorized all the lines, I ended up playing every single wise man. I was wise man number two one night, and then a couple days later, I'm wise man number one, with all the lines, just hogging the stage. I mean, I was so... After that point, when I finally knew that I could do what I always believed I could, I would have played every role on the stage. I even would have played the fake wooden camel if they let me. I would have played hay. I would have played sand. I would have played (laughs) baby Jesus with zero lines. I would have done anything because it's that feeling of, I can do this. Looking back on that, at no point, In between Dr. Jones handing me the script, me learning the lines, and literally putting on the fake beard, not once did Dr. Jones check up on me to see if I was doing okay or if I knew the lines. I would like to believe that he trusted me, that somehow he knew Sean's got this. And I never forgot Dr. Jones just trusting me you know, I'm I'm a lot older now. I, I still have trouble trusting myself. But I don't know if you've noticed, but you know, this entire time I've been telling you the story, at every turn I'm conscious of that maze. I still feel like I'm in that maze. I have to watch my letters. I have these trouble letters, P's and T's and S's. They trip me up sometimes. And every day is a new stage. Every time I leave my apartment, I feel like I'm getting dressed as a wise man. I'm going out there, and i got to perform. And I hope that people don't notice. And every time I feel doubt or worry, which is a lot, I like to imagine that backstage, there is little Sean. And he's there with me. I'd like to believe that he's back there. And when he looks up at me, he says you're not broken you never were but I'm sorry you still feel that way you shouldn't have to Sean as a storyteller I often wonder like what am I really giving you know it's just a story it's just me telling my feelings and maybe maybe that's what it is you know maybe what I can give is just the voice of somebody who's been there and if you're there if you're doubting yourself if you need a little Sean backstage you know I'm there too I think that's where it all started me pointing up at the rafters and believing there were angels up there looking after me because <laughs> I really could have needed an angel back then maybe they maybe they were always there you know maybe that's all what this voice is to you right now it's a voice backstage saying hey It's okay. I'm looking out for you.
1: This year's Holiday Stories episode, folks. This is Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings behind me now. And we just heard from Sean David Christensen, who you can find on Instagram at Sean David Christensen, or you can look up his band, Maggie Dave, there on Spotify or at MaggieDave.com. And before Sean, we heard from the Reverend Glenn Armstrong with his song Even Squeaky From Loves Christmas hey folks because this is a winter holidays episode it might seem a little unexpected for us to have an ad for the book grief day by day by jan warner on it but the holidays are a time that people who've lost loved ones whether it be this year or many years ago they have memories come up just like in this episode where there have been funny moments moments when people were in conflict moments when people were at their best memories of those we've loved and lost can bring up every kind of emotion like the experience of wishing they were still here or wondering if in some way they still are grief day by day explores all these kinds of feelings 365 topics to ponder or pray over insights from psychologists poets monks even ordinary folks like you and me people have written in to risk to say how much grief day by day has meant to them It's a long and winding road of ups and downs, ever-changing experience. And this book might be just the gift that you or a loved one need this holiday season. It's Grief Day by Day, Simple Practices and Daily Guidance for Living with Loss by Jan Warner. Wherever books are sold... Well, folks, I'm so grateful for so many people who made this episode possible this year. Our editors, Jeff Barr, John LaSala, Taj Easton, and Hope Brush. Our story coaches, Michelle Walson, Cindy Freeman, Brad Lawrence. We always love the suggestions that we get for the music on this episode. From folks like Matt Bomar, John Nelson, Craig Wedren, Jason Josephs, uh, Laura Runyon, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone. This is Matt Likes Tapes behind me now. And in the spot that we normally call the Easter egg, you know, at the very end of the episode today, we're going to feature a song in its entirety because it has to be heard to be believed. And it does tell a story. It's by Linda Bennett. It's called An Old-Fashioned Christmas, parentheses, Daddy's Home. Don't forget to follow us on all of our socials on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at risk show and on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison folks. Today's the day. Take a risk.
2: This is your music, news and weather station Bringing you the best in Christmas music On this beautiful Christmas Eve
4: Look outside, the snow is falling What a sight to see Daddy will be coming home As happy as can be He'll be walking through the door Ten minutes after nine Cause the bus he takes each night Is always right on time It's gonna be A very merry Christmas With all the chills. Christmas tree, it's gonna be a real old-fashioned Christmas for my children, their daddy, and me. Bells on pop ring, making spirits bright, what fun it is to
2: We're sorry to interrupt this program, but a bulletin has just been handed me. There's been a serious accident involving the number five bus out of New Haven. The only information we have is that the bus skidded on a patch of ice and slammed into a tree. Stay tuned to this station for further details.
4: Mommy, isn't that the bus? Daddy rides each night. Put your mind at ease, my children. Everything's all right. Everyone, don't get excited Things will be okay Nothing bad is gonna happen On this Christmas day It's gonna be
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed the latest report involving bus number five out of New Haven. And from all indications, we're sorry to report that there were no survivors.
4: Oh, my God, this just can't happen. What am I to do? What have I got left in life to look forward to? Who will walk me down the aisle On my wedding day Who is gonna buy me toys And take me out to play Daddy! Daddy! Merry Christmas, everybody! You know it's late, and I missed my bus Well, don't just stand there Help me with these presents It's it's gonna be Oh